precious opportunity God's given us to meet together here in his house. Um, trying just a little bit of an experiment this this morning with, uh, with our AM transmitter system. Um, we added a, another mic here because uh, individuals in the parking lot were not able to hear the hymns when they were selected in the numbers, so they, they had to catch up to a lot of the folks, uh, to the congregation on the inside on the hymn numbers. So this morning I'm I'm turning off this mic and the other two mics with the uh, with the board here behind me, just to make sure everyone in the parking lot is able to still hear my voice. To go, go ahead and blow your horn for me, please. Okay, we're good. Appreciate that. There's a verse of scripture that's found in the book of Job. It's in chapter 22 and verse 21, and we looked at this verse the last two weeks, where a man named Eliphaz the Temanite. He tells Job, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. We've already referenced the last two weeks how this verse of scripture, the words that were spoken by Eliphaz did not have direct application to Job, but they're still words of truth. These are words of truth. The more we acquaint ourselves with the Lord, the more at peace we will be and the more peace we will have in our lives. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Lord as the promised son. Last week, we put forth an effort concerning the Lord being the substitutionary lamb and him taking our place and suffering in our room instead. This week, if God would be our helper, I'd like for us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of God. If you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to read along with us, and I'd encourage you to bring your Bible every Sunday, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 21. The book of Exodus chapter 21 will begin this morning by reading the first six verses of Exodus chapter 21. Our focus being on the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of God. Exodus chapter 21 verse 1, now these are the judgments or the commandments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. These judgments were, were given to Moses 
when he was in Mount Sinai for 40 days and, and 40 nights. These judgments, these commandments that were given to Moses, that were delivered to the children of Israel, is often referred to as, as the law. The law, when it was given to the children of Israel, was given in three contexts. We have one, the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments still stand today. The Ten Commandments have never been set aside, put away. The Ten Commandments still stand today and they declare the holiness, the perfection, the righteousness of God. And they were given to men as a standard that we would be measured by, that we would, be know, that we would know ourselves that we are exceedingly sinful. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he satisfied the law in our room instead. Therefore, we cannot be condemned by the law, his children that he died for on the cross. But the law itself still stands, and the wicked one day will be judged in accordance to that law. Another context of the law that was given to Moses is the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is given to us throughout the book of Leviticus, and it's concerning the Levitical priesthood, the children of Israel, and they're going in and out of the tabernacle and their service to the Lord. Part of the ceremonial law was the offering of the two birds that would cleanse the lepers, the two goats that would be offered in Leviticus 16, the lambs that would be offered, the offerings in the morning and the afternoon for the nation of Israel. That was part of the ceremonial law. Everything about the ceremonial law pointed to Jesus and what he would do on the cross of Calvary. And after Jesus died for us on the cross of Calvary, the ceremonial law is no more. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, fulfilled everything about the ceremonial law in our room instead and also gave us a new service to God. It's referred to as the new covenant of service. In the house of God, we no longer have birds that we kill and use the blood and the water to wash someone. We no longer bring in goats. But we sing praise unto the Lord. And we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice here in this new covenant of service, the New Testament church. Third context of the law that was given by the Lord to Moses is the civil law. God gave Moses commandments concerning how they should interact and treat one another. Laws concerning their everyday activities. A lot of this is recorded for us here in Exodus chapter 21, 22, and 23. A few weeks ago, my children and my wife and I read through these, and, and I was talking to them about how these people were responsible, not only in their actions before the Lord, but also how they would treat one another. And these civil laws are given to them concerning how they should treat one another, what they should do, and how they should act living in the world that they lived in. Now these civil laws, as they were recorded here, they don't exist anymore with us in the New Testament church. The laws that we have in the New Testament church are to love one another, to forgive one another, to be kind to one another. Those are the laws that Jesus has given to us in the New Testament church concerning one another. This particular law that was given to us here in Exodus chapter 21 is concerning a servant that would be, that would be bought. You know, during this particular time when this was written, if an individual got himself in such debt with another man, he could be sold into servitude to pay the debt. 
And he would serve the man until that debt, debt was paid. But the Lord gave provisions concerning this that he would not go on and on. In the seventh year, the person would be set free. Or in the fiftieth year, the year of Jubilee, that person would be set free. Now, I'm sorry to tell you, when we read through the book of Jeremiah, the children of Israel had failed to keep these laws as God had, had commanded. But we read here in Exodus chapter 21 of this, this civil law, this law of a servant, one that would be a servant to another. And you would maybe think in your mind, Brother Ronnie, I understand this was a civil law that was given to the children of Israel, but you said you were just going to preach on the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of God. These civil laws that were given to the children of Israel, many of them point you to the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has actually done for us. And in this law, when I read through these six verses, I, I see the Lord in all six verses. I saw all this pointing to him, the perfect servant of God. First thing I'd like for you to consider this in these six verses is this one that's a servant. Before he could go out free, he had to satisfy the requirements of the master. See, you couldn't just have an individual that's sold into servitude and then just act any way and do anything and then expect the master to set them just, okay, it's all free, we forgot about it. No, the individual would have to satisfy the requirements of the, of the master. You know, when I consider us and our master in heaven, which is God, our father in heaven, have any of us ever really satisfied him in the things that we do? No, we have not. The Bible teaches us clearly that we've all come short of the glory of God. None of us in our works and our actions have satisfied the Father. You know, Adam was in the garden, and Adam was made by the Lord upright. And concerning man, Adam was the best man that's ever walked on this earth besides the Lord Jesus Christ. The best man. You know why? He was made by the hand of God, and he was made upright. Adam did not have sin in him. Man, this man that was the best man that ever walked on earth, an intelligent man, an informed man, a man that walked with the Lord in the garden, that man failed to meet the requirements. God told him not to eat of one tree. That man that was upright made by the hand of God that had not sinned before he ate of that tree, he failed to meet the requirements. Well, Brother Ronnie, I understand he was the best man, but if we inform men enough and get them to a place of intellect enough, they could probably meet all the requirements. Let's think about a man named Solomon. Besides the Lord Jesus Christ, Solomon would have to consider him the most intelligent man that walked on earth. Has anyone ever read through the Proverbs of Solomon and understood them all? There's more wisdom in that book alone than we will ever be able to comprehend in our lives. Solomon, the wisest man besides the Lord Jesus Christ, the most informed, intelligent man, surely with all that intelligence, he met all the requirements, right? No, he did not. Solomon did not meet 
all the requirements. He did not please God in all the things that he did. Well, Brother Ronnie, I'll tell you, if a man just had enough time and experience in this world, he could probably get to a place where he'd meet all the requirements. Would you consider 969 years old enough time to get enough experience to be able to meet all the requirements? There was a man named Methuselah that lived 969 years. And the Bible said he died. You know why he died? He failed to meet all the requirements in his own work. So enough experience could not get us there to meet all the requirements. Well, I tell you what, if we was able to strengthen ourselves in might and power, we could finally lift ourselves up to meet all the requirements. I think the strongest man in the Bible is probably Samson. I mean, how many times do you find Samson taking on multitudes of men? He was a mighty man. Pushed down pillars of, of great buildings. But even this man in his strength and in his might was not able to meet the requirements. No man has met the requirements until one came in the world and took upon himself perfect humanity, the perfect man, the man that is the fellow with God the Father, meaning of equal rank, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. When I think about this law and the requirement that would have to be met of the Master, I've got to think about the Lord Jesus Christ and him being the perfect servant of God in everything that he did, he met the requirement. Now, if we were to consider a perfect servant, what are the characteristics of a perfect servant? Now, when you consider these characteristics, every one of them are fulfilled completely in the Lord, and some of these you will see in individuals in this world. But if you see these in individuals in this world, what you're seeing is God in them. That's what you're seeing. Because carnal man is not able to meet these requirements. What is the characteristics of a perfect servant? What would you consider the characteristics of a perfect servant? I would think one, to be a perfect servant, he'd have to be one that understood and was humble and willing to please the Father. For us to be a perfect servant of God, we'll have to be one that understands the Father's will and is humble to the Father's will. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul called on the Macedonians to have the mind of Christ in them. What is he saying? Think and live the way Christ did. He is the perfect example. Let this mind be in you which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation but took upon himself the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man, what? He was faithful and humble under that will of God even unto death. So Jesus Christ, that characteristic, it, it's, it's to him. He is the perfect servant. Another characteristic of a perfect servant is one whose focus is on pleasing the Father. Now if this man that was a servant under this law was to meet the requirement, he'd have to be focused on pleasing the will of his master. 
the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that he did, he was focused on pleasing the Father in heaven. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2 when he got away from his mom and daddy? When I say mom and daddy, I'm making reference to Joseph being one supposed to be his father. People looked at Joseph as his father. We know Joseph was not his father. God the Father in heaven is his father. Mary, who had not known a man, was his mother. But he was brought up in that household. He got away from Joseph and Mary. And by the way, he got away from them one day, but it took him three days to find him. Always remember that, dear child of God. Anytime we get separated from the Lord in anything, it'll take us three times as much to get back to where we were. He was one day away, but it took them three days to find him. When they found him, what did they find him doing? Just playing with the kids? Having fun himself? No, he was there with those doctors and lawyers. Conversing with them. They said, don't you know we've been searching for you? He said, wish you not that I must be about my father's business. The Lord's focus in his entire life was on the father's will. Another characteristic of a perfect servant is one that is diligent and courageous in doing the Father's will. Have you ever thought in your mind why the Bible gives us four Gospels? The Bible gives us four Gospels. You have four perspectives of the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like this. If there was an accident up here at a four-way crossing... And it was people coming from four directions. They all saw it from a different direction. They all may tell it a little different way, but they're all talking about the same accident. These four Gospels talk about the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ, but they give you four different perspectives. And they're all four declaring the glory of the perfect servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Gospel of Matthew begins with his genealogy and his right to sit on the throne of David that he's sitting on right now. Over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, it says the kingdom of heaven is likened to, the kingdom of heaven is likened to. Matthew is telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of his people. The Gospel of Luke, which Luke was a physician. The Gospel of Luke tells you much about his perfect humanity, about him coming into the world, about his personal sufferings. The Gospel of Luke tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man. The Gospel of John begins with him before the foundation of the world. It gives us much information about his deity and being the eternal son of God. Mark's a little different. You know, Mark doesn't begin with that genealogy of a king, does it? Mark doesn't begin like John did. In the beginning was the word. Mark begins just immediately with his service. The 16 chapters of the gospel of Mark are telling us about the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that in the gospel of Mark, it spends more time telling us about the service of the Lord to his people than the other Gospels. The Gospel of Mark tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect servant of God. And I said one would have to be diligent and courageous. Have you ever noticed the Gospel of Mark over and over? You find the word and, the word and, the word and. It's almost like a continual story. You know, 12 out of 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark begin with the word and. I think the word and is over 1,300 times in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is diligent in his service. He's not one that stops. He's not one that's on a delay. He's not one that's late. He's one that's continuing going forward and going on and on in courageousness and pleasing the Father, being that, that perfect servant. The Gospel of Mark also has a, a word that 
I found interesting in the Gospel of Mark, and it's translated many different ways, it's the Greek term eutheos. The Greek term eutheos is referring to someone that's diligent in action, is always doing. And the Gospel of Mark uses that word 40 different times. It's translated differently. Sometimes it's translated like, like straightway, sometimes forthwith, sometimes immediately. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is always on the spot. He's the perfect servant of God. He's not one that's hiding somewhere, one that you'd have to look for, but he's always right there. The Gospel of Mark also gives us more details concerning his hands and his eyes because the perfect servant of God is not just one that speaks the service of God. He's one that does the will of the Father. The Gospel of Mark tells us that he is diligent and courageous in his service. The fourth characteristic of a perfect servant would have to be one that's willing to lay down his own life for the will of the Father. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ met all the requirements that was required to be declared to be the perfect servant of the Lord. But notice in this verse 3 and 4, this one that's a servant, there's a sense in which he could come in with a wife and there's a sense he'd be given a wife and have children. There's a way that you look at this, that he's got a wife that's his. But while he's in service, if there's given him a wife, it's, it's different. You know, when I consider these two verses, I think about the Lord. When, when you think about the world itself and everything that's in the world, it's all his. You know, the wicked even belong to God in a sense, right? It's all under him. The world is his. All the cattle of a thousand hills is his. You know, my little house that I'm living here in, on Sincerity Road, that's actually God's. He just let me live in it for a little while. When you think about that that belongs to the Lord, it should encourage us in our prayer life and in our needs. When I'm in need of something, I believe the Lord can provide. He owns the whole world, okay? There's nothing that's not his. Is he not able to give to his children? He owns the whole world. You know, when I consider it in a sense, Esau is his. Cain is his. Judas Iscariot is his. The king of Babylon is his in that sense, in the sense that he is the creator. He is God over all things. But there is a sense in Scripture where something was given to him. All things are his, but not all things are his in, in covenant. See, there is something, even though everything is his, there's yet something that's given to him. What was given to the Lord? Before the foundation of the world, there was a number out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation in Adam's race that was given to the Lord, even though all things are his in covenant, there was something that was given to him. And I know there's people probably saying, Brother Ronnie's going to get into that hard shell doctrine again. Well, that's right. It's just good old hard shell doctrine. It's just good old primitive Baptist preaching. And what it is, it teaches that before the world began, that God the Father gave the Son a definite number of the human race to be His, and it's those that He came into the world to die for on the cross. What this is teaching is covenant theology, that before the world began, there was a covenant that was made between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in that, there was a people given to the Lord to be His. Brother Ronnie, I struggle with that. I struggle with that, that that happened before the world began. Let me ask you, if it's not true that there was a covenant that was made before the foundation of the world, how do we interpret texts like maybe Psalms 111 verse 9? 
When it says he sent redemption unto his people, he has commanded his covenant forever, holy and reverent is his name. How do we apply that in our, in our study? If we can't apply that to the eternal covenant, what about texts like Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20, and the very God of peace, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant? How do we apply that in our study? If there's not an everlasting covenant. How about texts like Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 12? By the blood of thy covenant, thou hast sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit where there is no water. How do we apply that to our study if there's not an everlasting covenant that was made? i got another question for you. If we don't believe that there's a covenant made and there was a people that was given to the Lord before the world began, how do we apply words like predestination and election to our study of the Bible? How would they apply if we don't believe in an everlasting covenant? Before the world began, the word predestinated itself, pre-beforehand, there was fixed a destination point of a people. That would have to be done in a covenant before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30 makes reference to this word, and we were predestinated to be with the Lord in his image. And that doesn't mean that we'll all look alike when we get to heaven, but we'll be in holiness just as he is in holiness. I had a person ask me recently, when we get to heaven, will we know one another? Yes, we'll know one another. But we won't know one another the way we know one another on earth. We'll know one another in perfection and holiness. What that means is everything you don't like about me, you won't have to worry about when we get to heaven. It won't be there. You know, you're all going to like me when you get to heaven. So we just will start practicing now. Yeah, we'll know one another. I mean, i got a wife that's out here in the parking lot, Sister Jennifer. Here on earth, she is my wife. And I love her more than all the sisters of the church. Now, I love all the sisters of the church, but not like I love my wife. She's my wife. But you know, when we get to heaven, the love of the Lord will supersede that, and I'm going to love all the sisters exactly the same. But I'll still know Jennifer, but I will not love her more than I love you because we will all be the same in holiness and perfection in, in the Lord. But we'll know one another. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing my daddy when we get to heaven. I'm looking forward to hugging his neck. But I won't love him when I get to heaven any more than I love Brother Melvin Klotz. I won't love him any more when we get to heaven than I love Elder Cecil Darty or Elder Raven Lord. Brother Newell, I love everybody the same because we'll all be the same in the Lord and love one another because there's a greater love that we will, we will be in when we get there. We were predestinated to that. We were elected. The word election. How do we apply election in our study if we don't believe in a covenant? We were elected, chosen in Jesus Christ before the world began. It was God that chose us in him. You know, if we don't believe in a covenant before the foundation of the world that we were given to the Lord, how do we teach the word redemption? How do you teach redemption? You can't teach redemption unless you teach a covenant. I mean, I've got a... I've got a Bible here in front of me, and, and let's say I took this Bible and I was in such bad shape, I had to go to the pawn shop and pawn this Bible. And they gave me what they thought the Bible was worth, and I pawned it. You know, I could go back and redeem that Bible. Now, the man that owned the pawn shop could put 25 Bibles in front of me, and I could buy any of the others, but I could only redeem one. 
The only one I can redeem is the one that was previously mine. That's the only one I can redeem. The Bible says Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. The word redeemed literally means to buy back. See, we were given to him before the foundation of the world. We were separated from him in sin. And he came into the world to buy us back, redeem us. You cannot teach redemption unless you teach a covenant. If there's not a covenant before the foundation of the world, how do we teach reconciliation? I mean, I can be introduced to anyone, but I can only be reconciled to a person that I had a previous relationship with, and there's been a separation of that relationship. It has to be on my part. I mean, my wife is in the parking lot. If she and I were separated because of some sin on my part, I could be reconciled to her while we had a previous relationship. I can't just walk out on the streets of Monroe and meet some strange woman and say, hey, I'd like to get reconciled with you. I'm sure I could get in some really big trouble doing that. But if my wife or something that I've done, I was separated from her, we could be reconciled. We were with the Lord, one with him in covenant before the world began. Sin separated us from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, all things are of God who hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ. Christ came into the world on the cross to reconcile us back to the Father. Even the word ransom. You can't teach ransom unless you're teaching a covenant. I mean, my son is in the parking lot out here in, in, of the church. And let's say someone kidnapped him and held him for a ransom and they asked for so much money. I mean, there's only one that I'm going to pay a ransom for. And they call me up and say, hey, this is the ransom price. The money that I'm paying is for him that belongs to me. A ransom is for something in particular. You cannot teach ransom like in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 unless you're teaching the covenant. We were given to the Lord. I asked a person once that didn't believe in a covenant before the foundation of the world. I said, let me ask you this. I said, how did the people in the Old Testament go to heaven then? That's a good question, isn't it? How did they go to heaven? Oh, Brother Ryan, they went to heaven because they, they kept the law. None of them really kept the law. No, they did. And by the way, the law was never given that one would work their way into heaven. The law was given that they could know they were exceedingly sinful. None of those sacrifices they offered made them holy. That was just part of their service to the Lord. How'd they get to heaven? Children of the Old Testament are in heaven the same way we are. By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because he promised in covenant to come into the world to die for their sins on the cross. Let me illustrate like this. How many of you have a house that you're living in right now that you're making payments on? You're making payments on the house. You haven't paid it off, but you're still able to live in that house. You know why you're able to live in it? You made a promise a covenant that you would pay for it. The Lord Jesus Christ, before the world began, promised in covenant to his Father he would come into the world and pay for their sins. Therefore the Father took Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right into heaven. They were born again, saved the same way we are by the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in this text, something belonging to him and something given to him. But that that's given to him when he would fulfill this individual in Exodus chapter 21, all that was required of him, yeah, he can go out by himself, but if it's given to him, can't take that with you. Well, I don't want to leave my wife and children, the man would say. So if he loves his wife and his children, 
He'd have to plainly say, I love my wife, my children. I love my family. I will not go out free for nothing. He'd have to plainly say something before that master would take him to the doorpost and bore his ear through with an awl. And I want to tell you, when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of God, he has plainly said he loves his family. Could you agree with me this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken? This individual would have to speak. He couldn't just think, oh, I think I love my wife and my children. No, he would have to plainly say it. I love my wife and my children. Have you noticed nowhere in this is the wife and children even asked? The master doesn't go to them and say, hey, would you, would you like to be with this man? Would you like to be with your, your husband? Would you like to be with your dad? No, they're not asked. This is all between the master and the servant. And when you consider us belonging to the Lord, we were never asked. I was not asked. It was God that made the decision and has given me this hope. And I'm glad it's like that. You know why? I didn't have any standing before God to ask. Why? Because I was already guilty before his throne. Do you remember growing up and you'd have something that you wanted from your mom and daddy? you say, boy, I'll tell you what, I'd like to have that, but you'd already done something really bad and you knew daddy was mad at you. Oh, I'd never go to him and ask, ask him for anything during that time. Because I knew it was going to be a no. Why? I didn't have any standing to ask. Concerning the Father, we have no standing before Him. And if we were asked, we'd have made the wrong decision. I mentioned this a few weeks ago about Pontius Pilate when he put Barabbas and the Lord Jesus Christ before the people. See, Pontius Pilate was a politician. He thought in himself, I tell you what, I can put Barabbas here. This man Barabbas, he's a murderer. He's a robber. He's guilty of insurrection. I mean, this man was guilty of going into people's homes and beating them and taking their property if I took him and put him beside the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no way, there's no way they're going to say condemn Jesus. They're going to say give us, give us, give us Jesus, set him free, kill Barabbas. They're going to do that. Have you ever noticed it was it was the priest and them that manipulated the narrative to reach their agenda? Why don't you think about that in just a moment? It was the priest and those rulers that went around to the people and manipulated the narrative to reach their agenda. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of that going on today. There's a lot of people today that have an agenda that are manipulating the information and the narrative to reach their goal. When they were going to crucify Jesus, it was the priest and those that went around with information, deceiving the ears of the people, and manipulated the narrative to reach their end of their goal. They wanted to see Jesus dead. That's the reason Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These people were manipulated, and the narrative was manipulated by false information. But these people standing there looking at Barabbas and Jesus, surely they could make the right decision, right? Made the wrong decision. If those people that day could not make the right decision, how could I make a decision for heaven? I cannot this wife and this children were not asked. It was between the master and the servant. And thank God that the Lord in his mercy made a choice to save a poor sinner like me. And here is this one. He would have to plainly say, I love my wife and my children. He just couldn't just think it. He had to say it 
And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken. You know, when he came into this world, he spoke that he loved us. Have you thought about just how much it caused the Lord to suffer just to come into this world? Have you ever been in a place in this world where the environment just would cause your skin to crawl? I mean, people using foul language, people doing wrong things, and you think, boy, I tell you, this is just a bad place to be in. We're not in a good place. You know what's so funny about that is actually I have a nature within me that could find agreement with that. I have a carnal nature in me. My hope is the Lord is in me, but I still have a carnal nature that can find agreement with things that are wrong in this world. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have that. He's perfect. He's holy. Do you remember there in Luke chapter 9 when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration when he'd been there with Peter, James, and John, and they brought to him that lunatic son, and he said, how long shall I suffer this generation? Suffer? What is that saying? The Lord Jesus Christ in being here in this world was suffering. The eternal Son of God that grew up out of his place as a root out of a dry ground, that tender plant, him being in his perfection, suffered just being in this world. Him just being in this world declares something. He loves his family. John said in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Jesus Christ and all that he suffered declares, he says it plainly, I love my wife and my children. Those things that he suffered in his crucifixion declare plainly, I love my wife and my children. If you want to know how much the Lord loves you, dear child of God, just go to the cross and you can see how much he loves you and what he suffered. And this one would say plainly to his master, I love my wife and my children. I will not go out free for nothing. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to get you and he was not going out of this world without you. The Lord was not going back to heaven and leaving anything behind. He came into this world to save all of his children from their sins. And thank God Almighty, the Bible tells us that he accomplished that work. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, when the angel spoke to Joseph, concerning Mary, she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save some of his people from their sins. No, he shall save his people from their sins. He would not go out free, and then his master would take this one, bring him before the judges, and take him to the doorpost. And he bore his ear through with, with an awl, the mark of the perfect servant. Last Sunday, I read a verse of scripture with you in Psalms chapter 40, and I told you to hold on to something, that verse. I want you to go back and read that verse with me one more time. The perfect servant and the marks of the perfect servant and his ear being bored through with an awl. And I want you to see if you notice something different about these verses in Psalm chapter 40. Verse 6, Psalm chapter 40. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. That sound familiar? Sound like the ear of the perfect servant? This is not making reference to, to someone having their ears washed out with a rag. Mm -mm. Mine ears has to open, making reference to my ear has been opened with an awl. Burn 
offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written to me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Psalm chapter 40 and verse 6 is pointing us back to that perfect servant. And his ear being opened with an awe. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 5. This is a prophecy about the Lord. But it's also pointing back to that law of the perfect servant. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 5. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. Neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. What'd that say? Thou hast opened my ear. Well, Brother Ronnie, are you saying that the Lord had his ear bore through with an all? No, this is a figure and type of something else. Do you know the Apostle Paul, he quotes that text in Psalm chapter 40, and he quotes it over in Hebrews chapter 10. Turn there with me. We'll see how he applies that. Mine ear hast thou opened. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 4, the Apostle Paul would write, By inspiration of the Spirit, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Here's Psalms chapter 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but mine ear hast thou opened. Now what does he say? But a body hast thou prepared me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. The perfect servant, when he had his ear bored through with an awe, was a figure, a type, and a picture of the pierced body of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the master would take him to the post. Do you remember the post, the door post in Exodus chapter 12? That the blood would be applied on the top and on the sides. So the Lord Jesus Christ went to the doorpost of the cross. And his body was pierced. A crown of thorns was drove on his head. Nails was drove through his hands and feet. His back whipped as the plowers would plow the field. His vision so marred more than any man. And he went to that. Why? Because... He said plainly, I love my family. I love my wife and my children. I will not go out free. And he went to that post. He went to that cross. His ear, his body was pierced with the piercings of the perfect servant. And now there's one in heaven because he arose from the dead that has the marks of the perfect servant of God, that served God from start to finish in your room instead, that would not go out without his family, that went to that post because he loved you, and he'll bear those marks forever. And brothers and sisters, if you remember, there was one in John chapter 20 that didn't believe. He didn't believe that Jesus lived. You remember he was Thomas. You remember Jesus came to the disciples when they met together. And the door was shut, and he just went into him. You know, Jesus didn't have to open the door. He just walked in. 
When Jesus walked in, Thomas was not there. When they told Thomas about this, that they'd saw the Lord alive, Thomas didn't believe. If you think missing one church service doesn't matter, Thomas missed one church service and his faith was hindered. His believing, his hope was hindered because he missed one church service. The Lord came again and Thomas was there. He told Thomas, reach your finger hither to the print of the nails in my hand. Thrust your hand in my side. And Thomas didn't have to. He said, my Lord and my God. Why? He saw the marks of the perfect servant of God. There was Jesus Christ that served God the Father in our room instead perfectly to the giant and to the tittle. And he did not and would not go out with his family. You know, when I think about this, him having those marks, I've often thought about this, this family, this wife and children. After this man went to this post and had his ear bored through with an awl, how many times do you think the wife and children maybe sit down at the supper table? Maybe one of the kids said, Daddy, will you pass the beans? Maybe pass the taters. And as this passed them, maybe they looked up and they saw his ear, and that was bored through with an awl. And they were reminded what daddy had to go through for us to have what we have. What about the wife? When she looks across the table, she sees the kids all happy, enjoying the table, enjoying the house, and all the provender and all that they had. She said, honey, could you pass the fried chicken? She looks and she sees that mark in his ear. And she thinks, you know, I know you had to go through all that for us to have what we got right now. Brothers and sisters, when you come to the house of God, and you're able to feast from the bountiful table of God. Have you ever thought what the Lord went through for us to be able to enjoy this? Have you ever thought about the hope that you have of heaven above and one day being there with all the saints of the Lord, hugging all their necks, singing praise unto God, and what the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect servant of God, had to go through for us to have that place? I read in Amos chapter 6 and verse 6 of those that were not grieved with the afflictions of Joseph. What is that saying? For people that were there in the land of Goshen, and they were there in Egypt in the land of Goshen enjoying the, the storehouses being opened and them enjoying all the corn they wanted. But they didn't remember all that Joseph had to go through and all that he had to suffer in order for them to have that food in that storehouse, for them to have that land of Goshen. Brethren, sisters in Christ, we should remember in our hearts, in our minds, all that the Lord had to go through in order for us to have heaven, in order for us to have a place in the church, in order for us to have brethren and sisters in Christ, because without Him being the perfect servant and satisfying all the requirements and going to the doorpost and his precious body being pierced in our room instead. We have nothing, nothing. What should that cause us to be? It should cause us to be better servants of God. Jesus has given us an example of being a perfect servant. And when we look at him and what he had to go through and what he's done, we should love him more. Doesn't it make you love him more? When you think about the cross and him suffering in my room instead, doesn't it make you love him more and want to serve him more? I want to be a better servant of God. It was Paul's motivation. What do you think Paul was willing to suffer all that he suffered in the service of God? 
being left out of cities for dead, beaten with rods and stone. He was willing to suffer all that. Why? He loved the Lord and remembered all that he had to go through. We have a communion service once a year here at Union Grove, Primitive Baptist Church, to remind us of what the Lord went through in his death and his suffering and the bread and the wine that we would not forget. It should cause us to have a greater love for him, to be more faithful to him, to live a better life while we live below. And I'm going to end with something my daddy told me a long time ago. I remember once my daddy, somehow he knew I was going to get into trouble before I got in trouble. And he did. <clears throat> I remember I'd want to go out with some of my buddies and daddy would say, you know, you, you don't need to do this. This is not going to go well. And I thought to myself, I wonder how he knew that. But now I'm a little older and I know Daddy didn't get in the place he was in just by accident. He'd been through a lot of that. Kids, don't, uh, don't discount Mom and Daddy's experience. They've been there. I look at Daddy. I say, why? Why can't I enjoy it? He said, you know what? He said, I think we've already made Jesus suffer enough. I know I'm not perfect. My heart is grieved because I have caused enough suffering for my sake. And the reason I want to be faithful in his service, the reason I want to do right, is he suffered enough for me. May I live the rest of my days putting forth the best effort I have in pleasing him and showing him how much I appreciate what he's gone through that I would have what I have. May God richly bless you, our prayer. Does anyone here this morning like to come forward and ask for a home? Here at Union Grove, Primitive Baptist Church, please come forward and do so and stand and sing hymn number 47. 47.